All right, take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to the book of Micah, chapter 5. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time in this chapter. It's turned out to be very rich for me personally, and I hope for you as well. And this is actually our 12th week in this chapter alone. (laughs) This chapter has been so good, amen. To put that in perspective, it's only our 29th lesson overall. So that's 41% of our time has been spent here in chapter 5. And as we've done over the last four weeks, let's begin by reading verses 10 through 15 of Micah chapter 5. The Bible says here, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. And I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand. And thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee. So will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen such as they have not heard. We've already covered verses 10 through 14, going through these set of verses, and we've considered how God will at times have to perform surgery on us. Those things that we've allowed in our life that have crowded God out, that have caused us not to place our full trust in Him, things that maybe aren't sinful, but we have elevated above God, God says, I've got to have those in your life, and so God begins operating on us. And we're better off if we can learn to judge ourselves. Mm -hmm. Take those things out of our lives by us recognizing the need to do so, because when God starts to go to work, you may not enjoy that process. Amen. Because God is going to orchestrate circumstances in your life that are out of your control, in order that you realize once again, we have to trust Him and Him alone. And so you ought to just learn to judge yourself. That's what the Bible says to do, by the way. And um, it'll be painful at times as God begins to perform surgery on us. We see that here with the children of Israel in our text. God finally had enough of the house of Judah rejecting Him. And so now He was going to allow the Babylonians to enter into the land, destroy Judah, take them captive for 70 years as a result of them rejecting God and not trusting Him. And so we may not like the process, but God's surgery always gets our eyes back onto Him, trusting Him again, back in a right relationship with Him, recognizing our folly in departing from Him, confessing our sin, getting right with Him. And as we have seen, there are things we may trust in our text here, that are not wrong in of themselves. There was nothing wrong here in verses 10 and 11 for them to have a strong military and a strong defense. Those are blessings from God. I thank God that we have a strong military, amen? Those are blessings, but we can look to those things above God and we can act like, well, we're okay. Nobody's going to come against the United States of America. We've already seen what has happened in my lifetime anyhow, what happens when we, I mean, listen, 9-11, We can't trust fully in military or our defenses. We must trust in God. 
And so it's not wrong to have those things, but it is wrong when we make those the basis of our trust. You see, God wanted Israel and us to know that God wants to fight our battles for us. God wants to be our walls of protection. So God was going to cut off their horses, destroy their chariots, and He was going to throw down their strongholds. But then there are things that we can allow into our lives which are definitely wrong. They're sinful to begin with. They're wicked. They're... God would never be pleased with some of these things in our lives. And in fact, when we look to these things for help, it's a slap in the face of God, so to speak. But be not deceived, God is not mocked. So in verse 12, God was going to cut off their witchcrafts, their soothsayers. And we saw last week that God was going to cut off their graven images, pluck up their groves, and then destroy the cities that they had dedicated to their false gods. We must remove the idols out of our life. Remember, an idol is what you put before God, above God. God cannot tolerate these things in our life. Period. If we allow them, then God will work at removing them from us. Some of that may be harsh for some to hear, but I would say thank God that we have a God that loves us enough that He invests Himself in our lives and would take a personal interest to remove these things from us that we might know Him better and walk more closely with Him. He has our best interests in mind. Right. Amen. All right, for today, let's move on to verse 15 as we close out this chapter today. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen such as they have not heard. Here we find a characteristic of God many people don't like to admit exists. People don't want to talk about it. And sadly, it's not just the unchurched these, this, these days that don't want to talk about it. There's a large movement within churches that don't want to admit that God can get angry, that God can execute vengeance in fury, and that God will pour out wrath. Many will only ever want to focus on God's love. That's a great thing to focus on. Amen. God is a God of love. Thank God that He is, or else we wouldn't have salvation in Christ because God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we wouldn't even have salvation if it weren't for the love of God, but we must be honest with the Word of God. This is why I love going verse by verse. It brings us to confront these kind of passages that maybe otherwise we wouldn't hear. And we have to be honest with the Word of God and teach the whole counsel of God, which at times includes verses like verse 15 here. Now, as I was thinking about this, it's almost mind-boggling to me that there is such a move away from teaching about God's wrath. Because God's wrath is tied into the reason that He came to this earth in the first place. In a strange way, I don't even know how to put it into words, but in a strange way, the love of God and the wrath of God are connected. Let me just read to you a passage to try to explain this. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-10 through 10 say, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we, reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And so we find in this passage God's love and God's wrath. God commendeth His love toward us that we might be saved from wrath through Christ. God proved His love for us when Christ died for us. And I have to hammer these things because you'd be surprised how many people struggle with, oh, I just don't think God loves me. Are you kidding me? He died for you. God does love you. He proved His love for us. But why did Christ die for us? There's a number of reasons we could put into that list. Why did Christ die for us? One reason is because we were the enemies of God apart from Christ, and as such, we deserved the wrath of God for having rejected His Son. But God loved us enough to die for us so that we could be reconciled to Him. So why did Christ come to, get, to die? According to Romans 5 there, He came to save us from wrath. Something would have been awaiting the enemies of God, is awaiting the enemies of God. And so we, He came to save us from wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. The wrath of God will ultimately be an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. Now, some have wrestled with a thought that we had to be saved from God by God. That ultimately what's taking place is we're being saved from God by coming to God. I don't think that's a full representation of all the facts, though. I understand where people get that thought from, but it isn't really complete. We were deserving of God's wrath because we rejected Christ. Amen. We were deserving of God's wrath. And one of the hardest things to get people to see is that you deserve the wrath of a good God. So really, God is not saying, you need to be saved from me. But I believe a better way to say all this is, God is saying, you need to be saved from yourself. Because you're wicked. Your flesh will not do right. It is at enmity with God. It's not subject to the laws of God. Neither can it be. We also find this principle of God's love and God's wrath in John chapter 3. Very famous passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But listen to what it says in John three thirty six: He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so here again we see the love of God and the wrath of God. Those who reject Christ have the sentence of God's wrath abiding on them presently. In our messed up judicial system, you might have the sentence of something upon you, but it's not been executed yet. And in, in the spiritual realm, there is the wrath of God abiding on you. The sentence has been passed upon the lost, but it has not been executed yet. That will be executed at our physical death. 
Because God is merciful, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the wrath of God abides on the enemies of Christ, and the only way to have that sentence removed is for the heart to turn to Christ. So the sentence is abiding. abiding. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent Christ to die for sinners. That whosoever, that's all of us, that whosoever should place their faith and trust in Christ alone could be saved, had the sentence of God's wrath removed from them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We get, to, we get to exchange the... I mean, you talk about a plea deal. I don't know if that's the right term in, in legal terms. But listen, we get to exchange the, the wrath, the, the sentence of God's wrath, and exchange it for God's eternal life. Why? Not because we're good. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. But it's because God said, I know you're not good enough. So I'm going to come down to you. I'm going to die for you. And so now God in His love removes the sentence of His wrath. Once our hearts turn to Christ, our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. At that very moment, the sentence of God's wrath is removed. We are now delivered in Christ from His wrath that will one day come upon the ungodly. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, His children, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, understanding that there is wrath to come upon those who reject Christ's sacrifice, why is there such a move away from this teaching in our day? To act like God isn't a God of wrath is to lessen the very reason why Christ had to come and save us to begin with. If there is no wrath, what are we being saved from? If there is no wrath after this life, then why don't we just reject Christ, eat, drink, and be merry, and die and go into annihilation? Now, understanding that God will exercise His wrath, We cannot ignore this fact. How are we now to interpret Micah 5.15? Where does this fit into everything? Well, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. The natural flow of things here in in Micah chapter 5 is still in regard to the children of Israel, more directly the house of Judah. Therefore, one way to view this is God was going to execute His vengeance against those in Israel who still rejected Him and and held on to their idolatry, and God was going to use the Babylonians against them to execute His vengeance. That's one way to look at this. Some see this verse being fulfilled when God would destroy the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in earlier than the Babylonians. They destroyed the house of Israel. They took them captive. They sowed them among the nations. Later on, the Babylonians came in, destroyed Jerusalem, took the house of Judah captive. And so some see here in verse 15 that what it's saying is God's going to execute His vengeance upon those who came in against Israel. One may also make the application to Israel in A.D. 70, Jerusalem in particular, when God poured out His wrath upon Jerusalem for them rejecting their Messiah. 
And of course, many will see verse 15 here in Micah 5 as ultimately being fulfilled at the end of this age when God will pour out His wrath upon this earth. Well, let's take a look at these options. First, is this God referring to taking vengeance upon Israel for rejecting Him? It's amazing how many people will overlook this option because of their opinion of Israel as God's chosen people. But what does the Bible really say? The Bible here mentions God taking vengeance upon the heathen, and to be sure, the heathen almost always in the, in the Bible refers to a foreign nation. It's the Gentiles. It's a Hebrew word that's translated into English in our King James Bible as Gentile, heathen, nation, and people. But what's interesting about this Hebrew word, heathen, the root word, it means the back of a person. And so the idea is that the heathen are those who have turned their back to God. This can definitely be said of Israel. But are there any verses which directly call backslidden Israel heathen? Well, I went and looked at every verse that had the word heathen in it. You're welcome. Here's what I found. 2 Kings 16.3, it says, it's speaking of Ahaz, he was king over Judah, did according to the abominations of the heathen. The same thing, the parallel passage would be 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles 28.3. In 2 Kings 21.2, Manasseh did after the abominations of the heathen. And again, that's 2 Chronicles 33.2. In 2 Kings 17, 8, it says the children of Israel walked in the statutes of the heathen. It says in 2 Kings 17, 15, that they went after the heathen that were round about them. In King Zedekiah's day, he was the last king of Judah right before the Babylonians came in. We read in 2 Chronicles 36, 14, that all the chief priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen. Ezekiel eleven twelve, And ye shall know that I am the Lord, for ye have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are round about you. Ezekiel twenty thirty two, Ye say, We will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries to serve wood and stone. Ezekiel 23, 30, I will do these things unto thee because thou hast gone a-whoring after the heathen and because thou art polluted with their idols. Kind of matches the flow here of Micah 5, doesn't it? Ezekiel 25, 8, Thus saith the Lord God, because that Moab and Seir do say, Behold, the house of Judah is like unto the heathen. <laughs> Interesting, the heathen are saying they just like the heathen. Now, none of those verses directly call them heathens, but there's an old saying that if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, it must be a duck. Israel was acting like the heathen, looking like the heathen, walking like the heathen, sounding like the heathen, therefore, they must have been heathen. This is why your testimony is important. And all the characteristics you'll find to describe the heathen fit the description of Israel at the time when God allowed judgment to come upon them. God even said numerous times that He would scatter them among the heathen. You see, God's attitude was, you want to be like the heathen so much? How about you? I just scatter you to the heathen. You can see what it's like to live amongst the heathen. You see, God doesn't play. That's the whole point of today's lesson. Amen. He's going to execute vengeance. 
Therefore, I personally see no problem with verse 15 of Micah chapter 5, meaning God is going to execute vengeance upon Israel. I don't think we should dismiss that thought so quickly. Now, another option is to view this as God destroying the nations which destroyed Israel. There are plenty of verses to cite that support that position. I'm not going to go there for sake of time. I won't read them now. The, the progression would, would be this thought. The Assyrians destroyed the house of Israel. The Babylonians destroyed the Assyrians, and the, then the house of Judah. And then the Persians destroyed the Babylonians. And then ultimately it was Cyrus, king of Persia, that issued the decree for uh, the Jews to be released from captivity, thereby fulfilling this prophecy is what some people say about Micah 5.15, and I see no problem with that either. Another viable option is when God allowed the Romans to destroy Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now this goes back to the first thought that I gave you, that if you adopt the lifestyle of the heathen, then expect to be treated like the heathen. And in the first century, the temple in Jerusalem had become Israel's idol. They love that, they love that temple. So much so, Jesus said, destroy this temple three days, I'll raise it up again. And they threw a hissy fit, as we would say. Amen. Of course, Jesus was talking about his body, but they loved that temple. It was their idol. And in some respects, it still is in Orthodox Judaism. You can see them today at the Wailing Wall. And in the first century, the, the, the temple there, God, he knew that they loved that thing so much that he eventually said he was going to destroy it. Jesus said in parable form in Luke 19, 27, But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Luke 19, 43 and 44, For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Luke 21, verses 20 and 20 through 23, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too, for these be the days of vengeance. That's what Micah 5.15 says. That all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and listen to this, and wrath upon this people. For sure, Micah 15 fits the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In fact, from Matthew's account, we would read how the tribulation of those days would be such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And this fits the end of Micah chapter 5 very well. The last option here is that this verse in Micah would be the end of this age, when God will pour out His wrath upon the earth, those who have rejected Christ. I want to give you just a small sampling of these passages. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now that's not saying you can't have those sins forgiven, but what that is saying is there's only one sacrifice for sins, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So don't make that verse say something it doesn't, like a lot of people try to. But then it goes on to say, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Revelation 6 
15 through 17. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Isn't it amazing that they would rather call for the rocks and the mountains to cover them than call upon the name of the Lord? Revelation 14, 19, and 20, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came, up, came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Revelation 16.1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your way and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when you read a passage like that, it makes Isaiah 63 make sense. Isaiah 63, verses 2 through 4 says, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. There is no denying from God's Word that there is a day of wrath somewhere off in the future. He is going to execute wrath. He's going to tread the winepress. He's going to be angry. He's going to be furious. And He is going to put down all the enemies of Christ. You say, I don't like that. That's not fair. You understand Christ died a horrific, violent death for you? And you have the nerve to reject Christ and say, no, I don't want God's free gift of salvation. How dare we preach around the idea that there's no wrath? There's wrath. It's, it's so clear in the Bible. Why would we ever try to preach around and act like it's not a part of who God is? Those are four common positions from Micah 5.15. If you ask me what my position is, I would tell you, just remember this. When you look at an Old Testament prophecy, there's often a near fulfillment, but also a far-off fulfillment as well. That could be the case here. I'm just going to be a politician today. I'm not going to tell you where I stand. But you have, to, you have to remember that. What's important to know from this passage is this, that God will execute vengeance upon the heathen. And if you're without Christ today, you've got to stop playing games. Don't get mad at the preacher. A preacher who's your friend would tell you the truth. I want to give you a couple of parting shots from this passage. We must always remember that the Bible is clear that vengeance belongeth to the Lord. As much as we would love for the Bible to say, vengeance is mine, praise the Lord. It says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I guess I'm the only one that battles wanting to pull out a bazooka in traffic and uh, deal with people, amen? Uh, or sheep. <laughs> All right, anyway. Um, 
One pastor said, uh, I hunt deer because it's better than shooting deacons. In God's time, according to His will, He'll take care of it. And as much as some of us have to resist it, we don't have to take matters into our own hands. Amen. Also, there's great news for the child of God. I read it earlier. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, you don't have to fear God's wrath. Now, I don't understand it all, but God, over there in Exodus, remember when the ten plagues were being poured out? He was able to make a separation between Israel and the Egyptians when He chose to. And so God can take care of us no matter what. And we don't have to worry about His wrath being upon us as His children. His wrath is reserved for the ungodly. Jude verses 14 and 15 say, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. God's against the ungodly. Are you getting that? The day is coming and it's closer now than it's ever been. That's common sense that our Lord is going to return and He's going to straighten out all the insanity that is this world we live in. He's going to put down all rule and authority. The nations will become His and He's going to rule with a rod of iron for a thousand years upon this earth. Death and hell after that will be cast into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. Here's the deal. Our only hope is to be found in Christ. So are you found in Him today? Not are you found in church. Not have you been found in the baptismal waters. But are you found in Christ? Do you know that you know Him? Or will you be found among the heathen who will experience His vengeance in anger and fury? You see, the choice is yours. God made us with a free will. Yeah, amen. He doesn't want little robots that are just programmed to love Him. He wants us to choose to love Him. You want that too in your life. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, please don't put it off any longer. Run to Him while you still can. You're not guaranteed the rest of this day. Neither am I. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And He will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. You can't get so deep that God can't reach you. Hallelujah. You say, you don't know what I've done. I don't, but God does. And I know what the Bible says, and the Bible says He can wash away every sin. And here's the deal this morning. You don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of God come judgment day. You don't want to at any time, but especially on that day, before then it's too late. 
Now, as we close out this chapter, this went way faster than I thought it would today. Let me read to you Psalm 2, the whole psalm. It says this, Why do the heathen rage? And, and God here is addressing the heathen in Micah 5.15. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of this earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, that's Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. What do you have to do today? You have to run to Christ. Metaphorically speaking, you need to kiss the Son. His wrath, it only has to be kindled a little. He just speaks, and the enemies fall down before Him. I can't remember the quote now, but it's coming to my mind, so I'm going to try my best to not butcher it. I read it in Matthew Henry's commentary, and it said something to the effect of, Christ will either get your heart, or He will be given your neck. Something to that effect. You will either be saved, or you will experience His wrath. Now, I'm not here to scare anybody to death, but Jude does say others saved with fear. And if you're without Christ today, you ought to quake at the thought of dying without Christ as your Savior. So if you need to be saved, I want you to come and see me. We'll show you from the Bible how you can know Christ as your Savior.